Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 36th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Scott Hansen. Scott is a co-founder of Hansen McLean, an independent RIA based in the Sacramento area that manages nearly $2.5 billion of assets under management for almost 4,500 clients, most of which are telecom and utility workers. What's fascinating about Scott's firm, though, is not merely that they managed to turn a, a niche in working with Pacific Bell retirees into a mega RIA, but how their steady focus on reinvesting into marketing has allowed Hans McLean to build an advisory firm where none of the advisors are responsible for their own marketing and business development and instead can focus entirely on serving their clients, which has allowed Hans McLean to reach a stunningly high net promoter score of 85. In this episode, we talk about how Hans McLean markets itself, what it took to get established in their initial niche working with Pac Bell employees, how they expanded successfully into marketing with a radio show, though Scott is not actually very upbeat on the potential of marketing through radio today, and why direct mail for seminars and other marketing events still works in today's business development environment, as well as the depth of the marketing team that Hanson McLean maintains to sustain its growth. In addition, Scott shares his own journey as an advisor, from starting out at a financial planning-centric life insurance firm to transitioning to working at an independent broker-dealer while building his hybrid RIA, why he ultimately decided to let go of his FINRA licenses to focus solely on the RIA, and the challenges in managing and maintaining growth in an ever-larger advisory firm. And be certain to listen to the end, where Scott shares why he decided with his partner to sell 70% of Hanson McLean to a private equity firm, despite the fact that he thinks the firm can grow to double or even quadruple its size in the coming years. Because ultimately, the reality is that growth requires cash, and in the end, it can still be a better deal to own a smaller slice of an ever-growing pie and have the benefit of taking a few chips off the table as well. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Scott Hansen. Welcome, Scott Hansen, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks, Michael. It's nice to be here today. I've been looking forward to this episode because you've had, I think, just a, a fascinating journey as a serial entrepreneur through the advisory industry. Like, I don't, I don't know what else to call it. I, I feel like I've watched your firm reinvent itself several times over the years in, in how you built and grown. And, and as we'll talk about, you know, off to the side, you made a little reverse mortgage company that Genworth ended up buying for tens of millions of dollars because that's it's a fun side hobby to to building an advisory firm. And and now you you were in the news recently because your firm sold a rather substantial stake to a private equity firm, which, as you guys put it, was an opportunity for bigger growth. And I, I find that a fascinating thought process when, when most advisors kind of they, they sell most of the equity because they're done, not sell most of the equity because now they want to make it bigger. Well, you know, it's funny, Michael. I, I actually feel like I'm just getting started. <laughs> I'm 50 years old and. I see my, my days ahead of me much larger than my days beyond me, be, behind me. So I, I'm actually pretty excited about the future and what that holds. Wow, very cool. So I guess to start off, like, can you just tell us a little bit about Handsome McLean as it exists today and, and the, the advisory business that you have now? Yeah, yeah. So uh, Handsome McLean, we are an investment advisory firm that really – we specialize working with, with hardworking savers. So 
the you know, the mass affluent, I think, is what our industry likes to call them. But our our kind of sweet spot is working with people that have somewhere between five hundred thousand and a couple million dollars in their retirement savings. We tend to target people at or near retirement. That's what our specialty is, helping people through that transition and trying to figure out what makes sense for them. And we've got a team of roughly 20 or so advisors with the overall staff, a total headcount of around 70. And we ran, manage just shy of two and a half billion. So that's kind of who we are as a firm. Hey, but we're also very, we're, we're very marketing focused. So our organization is one that our advisors, they, 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 their role is to be a financial advisor and to talk with clients and help them with their planning process and whatnot. And the firm's responsibility is to find the clients, So, which makes us quite a bit different than I think a lot of firms. So, Most of the industry is still an eat-what-you-kill environment. Well, which is a, our industry needs to figure this out because uh, you know I, when I started 25 years ago, you were able to sell B-share mutual funds, <laughs> variable annuities, and all that kind of stuff. So you got these upfront commissions that help really finance the growth of the business. That doesn't exist today. At least if you're going to be a fiduciary, it doesn't exist. So it's, it's really challenging for someone to start the business. And there's no cold calling like there was in the past. It's just very different. And I think it's a real challenge. So you know, our model is one that we get advisors who want to be great advisors, maybe aren't the best marketers or that's just not what they enjoy doing. And we supply, supply the, the clients. And I actually think that's, that's the wave of the future for advisory firms. I think, I mean, if you look at the, look, for example, Charles Schwab, they have a, a, quite a few certified financial planners work for them. Schwab does all the marketing, et cetera. So there's, they're, obviously they're in lots of different businesses, but I think that's my, this is also a wave for the future of the advisory business. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting phenomenon. You know, you, you have such a good point that, in a world of upfront commissions, it was much more viable to kind of self-finance and bootstrap the growth of your firm because you didn't you didn't need that many clients in the first few years to make the math work when all the compensation for the first five years is front loaded into year one every time you do business with a new client. You know, in, in back twenty years ago, a hundred thousand dollar rollover was like a, a four or five thousand dollar check into a B share. Now a hundred thousand dollar rollover is like, hey, awesome news. Three months from now, you'll get a two hundred and fifty dollar check for your first <laughs> quarterly billing. That's right, and it just and you spend hours and hours get the client into place too. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's a different. It's very different today. And but I mean, the flip side is that means there's a heck of a burden on the firm to actually figure out how to do the marketing to bring in the clients for an ever-growing number of mouths to feed if there are more and more advisors who are great service-minded advisors but not inclined or built for doing business development. So, Well, there's no, there's no question. I mean, and our marketing department continues to grow and it's, it's challenging and, you know, the things have moved away. Traditional media, it doesn't pull like it used to pull and things, so things are rapidly changing in that space. But on the flip side, our advisors don't have this pressure of where am I going to get my next piece of business from? And they don't have to think, uh-oh, it's Thursday night. Maybe I should be going to this, some networking event so I can meet somebody and buy them lunch and hope to sell them something. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so they, they're just free to, to have their own lives. So how does compensation then to advisors work in an environment like that? I mean, I'm going to presume if they're if – they're, well, if they're not responsible for business development, I'm going to guess a huge portion of their compensation is not for business development as is for a lot of other advisory firms. Like, That's, yeah. So, I mean, how does frank, someone get compensated? I mean, look, the, the people in our industry that have the most financial success tend to be the, those that are the best at rainmaking or 
marketing, developing clients. So if you look at the top advisors of whatever list you're looking at, they tend to be the ones that have figured out the marketing game, right? It's marketing yep. and branding and how to get the you know clients to come through the front door. So, but there's a lot of great advisors out there that want to be great advisors. So our advisors, we've got great advisors. Their pay is is you know, they're end of you know, at the end of the day, they're they're not going to make as much as the person who's on the top ten advisory list at some sure. Point. But they understand that. But when they when they join us, they also know that they'll give up some potential upside in exchange for some quality of life and not have to worry about where the client is. So in that differential, that's the dollars we use for the marketing. Well, and and, and I mean, I've always found there there's there really are a lot of advisors out there that just they're not inclined towards business development. Like they they just want to give people advice and get paid reasonable compensation for a job well done servicing clients and. Up until a few years ago, those were basically the people that large firms weeded out. Yeah, if they ever got hired. Yeah, because like the, the goal of the screening process was to screen out non-business developers. And if we accidentally hired one, we'll make sure that they fail in the first couple of years because you get paid for what you hunt down and bring in and all we want is business developers. And so there was no place for people to land if their sole goal was, I just actually want to get paid to be a good advisor. But there's still not many places for people to land. Unfortunately. There's really not. You know, I mean, that's just the sad thing. There's not. Because I guess what that dynamic means, the the only places you can go to land, you have to find firms that have actually built and institutionalized their own marketing process so that they're not reliant on their advisors for the business development. Like that's kind of the trade-off. That's exactly right. So like an interesting interview question for for advisors looking for firm, like asking the firm, what is your marketing process? And if the firm answers the marketing process is you, the advisor, then this this may not work out for you if you're not business development inclined. Yeah. And I think some of us don't know if we're business development inclined or not yeah. until we're actually doing it, right? Yeah. But it's interesting. You know, t- 10 years ago, if, if I talked to someone, they wanted, let's say a college student was thinking about becoming a financial planner. I'd say, why don't you do a summer job selling something, whatever it is, figure out, learn some sales skills. And I don't know if I'd give that same advice today. Because I think it's changed. Things are starting to change. So what would you tell that person today to do with their summertime to, to try to prepare themselves for success in the advisory industry? I would say look for an independent advisory firm to be an intern for, a fee-based mm. advisory firm, even if it wasn't paid. Just just to start learning the business and getting Yeah, and every town's got – you know, it's our industry is in- interesting because it's mostly mom and pop still. The RA space, but every city's got you know some decent sized ones that are some larger firms just to learn something about the business and and find somewhere where you can add some value. So so how does a two point five billion dollar advisory firm market itself to feed new clients to twenty advisors and growing? Like what does that marketing process actually look like from the from the firm's end? Since I'm going to presume it, it, it's not. Hey, go to networking meetings and and you know try to build referral relationships with centers of influence and all that. So, I mean, what does marketing look like at a firm like yours? Well, so well things are changing, but historically we've done a lot of radio. I've done a weekly radio program for twenty two years on the largest station. Like that's local to your market. Yeah, we're in Sacramento, San Francisco Bay Area, and Denver, and so we've done that for twenty some odd years. Which has been a, and the thing about long format radio that has been powerful in the past, it gives people a chance to get to know you a bit. So they, they listen to you long enough. They feel like they know you and that trust levels built up and whatnot. 
So the key to the radio side really is like, it's not radio ads, it's long-term radio programs that you can actually start getting regular listeners. Long-form radio, plus we do some ads. But I I think the radio business, the radio game's changing. We can talk about that some during the program as well. But so we we do that. We also, we do some direct mail and I actually think direct mail is a medium that's overlooked a lot lot these days because... Direct mail, like good old-fashioned... Get some addresses and 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 send them a like an actual physical piece of mail. So let me ask you a question, Michael. When you go to get your mail at home, is there more or less mail today than there were ten years ago? Yeah, I guess it's similar, or more like it, it's not less. It's not falling no, off. No, it's not less, right? I mean, I hate getting the mail because there's so much there. But I mean, the challenge is like I feel like there's less and less that's actually for me, and and more and more that's marketing related. But I guess that's kind of the point that that there's still a lot of direct mail marketing happening. Yeah, these companies don't, you know, these backyard furniture companies don't send me these catalogs every three weeks because they want to waste their money, right? I guess you know, every, every once in a while I buy, buy, buy something. So yeah, I I can't I can't remember where it was, but I had heard once like one of these you know, marketing tidbits of wisdom. Like if you ever see a piece of marketing that just keeps bugging you and nagging you and you and and annoying you and you really don't like it. Pause for a moment and pay attention because the only reason it's happening repeatedly is that someone on the other end of that is getting a return on investment. Otherwise, it would just happen once and it would go away. So anytime you see marketing that keeps repeating like that, even if it's not connecting with you, like take a moment and pay attention to what's working there because something is working. Someone's getting an ROI even if maybe you weren't the intended audience. No question about it. We do more and more digital marketing these days with, obviously, our, our radio program we have through podcasts. We actually have more subscribers now on a weekly basis through our podcast than we do on terrestrial radio. But also, we do a number of other things. And we've tried a bunch of stuff, digital advertising, a lot that hasn't worked, but some things that we still find work. We're finding, actually, Facebook is probably one of our better pull-throughs right now. And, and those are the, the primaries that we and we also do some, even some old school stuff with some ads and some smaller newspapers, you know, the kind of the community newspapers that are around the small newspapers. We, some of those markets, we'll, we'll do some small ads that seem to work. So, so, I, so I'd love to understand these a little bit more about, about what it looks like, like how this works from the advisor marketing perspective. So like starting with the weekly radio program, you said you've been doing this for, for 20 plus years now. So I mean, what's the radio part? I'm like, wh- what do you do? How long is it? When is it on? Like, what's, yeah. what's the show? And any, anyone can listen to it if you go to moneymatters.com or handsomemclean.com, either one, you'll be able to listen to a program. But and we'll include a link out to it in the show notes as well. My partner and I do it together, and there's a little bit of banter back and forth. We've been working together for long. I mean, we sound like brothers because we've been working together so long, so we complete each other's sentences and whatnot. <laughs> and we have a call-in format, so we have people call. And I think the thing, interesting thing about the call-in format is that it gives the audience a chance to see us practice in action. So they see us working. Oftentimes, someone calls with a question, and that's not really their question. They think that's their question, but it's not really their question. Just like with an advisor, right? You sit down with a client, and they think they have this problem. It's like, well, you have these other issues too. Let's. So it's the same sort right. of thing like that the, happens on the radio. The, the person asks a question about 401k loans, and the real question is like, well, why, yeah, do, you, yeah, why yeah. do you need to borrow money? And what spending issue is going on that you need <laughs> right, a 401k right, right. loan? It's not not actually about what are the rules for a 401k loan. Exactly right. So it, people get a, a, a chance to see us do those sort of things. And then we'll have guests on periodically. We're on whatever, a variety of different things. But it's not every week, so the guests tend to be more infrequent. 
So do you ever get fearful that some someone's going to call in and, and stump you and you get to be stumped on live radio with a whole bunch no, of listeners? No, we've been stumped before, but usually if you're stumped, it's some obscure thing, some obscure tax. You know, someone had lumber property that they exchanged or something else and then they died and it was in this trial. I mean, it's like something super obscure. Like no one would expect you to know that. But if it, it does force you to keep on top of what's going on in the marketplace. Yeah. But we're not, we don't do it live anymore. We did it live for 19 years and about two years ago, we switched to recording it during the week and we really record a couple programs at a time and we line up the calls ahead of time. So okay. basically calls are scheduled the same way that you know, say a television so what what led you to what led you to make that change? Personal freedom. Of just of not needing to physically go to a radio station to do your your <laughs> on your a Saturday. Yes, there's Saturday midday. So I always said if it was Tuesdays at ten, I'd love it. Yeah. But it was it was it, over the years it was Saturdays and Sundays midday, and so you'd end up missing family life and missing other things, and so and and so is that. I mean, is that still what you were doing up until two years ago? So for 19 years, like you were driving to a radio station every Saturday midday to do a recording? Correct. But I also would say it was the only it was the only two hours of the week or hour of the week that it was scheduled. Everything else I had some flexibility with. So, and and you did it weekly. Correct. And it was and how long did the show run? These days, it's an hour. For we had years where it was two hours. We had. A year or so where we had three hours. I don't think more is always better. I don't think it's always necessary. Because the main, the main, the, the, so the goal of the radio program is obviously to to drive listenership, but it's to it's to get the right kind of person, right kind of prospective client interested in what you have to offer and have them reach out to you and schedule an appointment. That's the overall objective. So, and so that's how it worked. Like at some point in the show, you get to mention like. Hey, we're Pat and Scott from Hanson McLean, and if you ever need help, we're here. We're obviously giving you all this radio advice for free, but if you ever need to go deeper, we're here to help. Give us a call, and 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 every now yeah, and then the phone rings. We've always correct, but we've always been really low key about that. So for many years, we would never state that. We would put an ad in the middle of the program that would state that, but we would never state that in the middle of the program. Or if someone would say, "Boy, how do I come and find you guys? Love to meet with you," would say, "You know, the show's really not about." us it's about you so we don't want to promote ourselves we always found that was a better way to promote yourself frankly uh, the, the whole kind of the whole negative selling dynamic you say like no 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 i can't talk about that then they're just like well now i want to know the takeaway clothes i think yeah. is what you know salespeople try but these days with you know our website and whatnot our digital properties oftentimes we're driving we try to drive people to somewhere else and then to get them to respond like what like you 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 send them to the website for some kind of mailing list, and then the mailing list later is going to ask them to do business, that that kind of sequence? Yes and no. I mean, we might mention a certain article that we have on our blog that particular week, so go visit us our website there. We did for a while where we had – you talked about sequence – where we mapped everything out with the campaign where someone would – they'd ask you – know, they were interested in a certain article, so we would gate it. So they'd provide their, their email address and then would send them an article on this that, you know, a lot of products do that. And you see, they follow you around if once you. Yep. Yep. And yeah, you get all the retargeting ads once you, once you yeah, hit yeah. it once. And I, we still do some retargeting, but, but we were, we were very campaign focused 
and it didn't yield the results of what we were <laughs> of all the work that went into it. So we we basically said, you know, let's just ungate this stuff. And if people want to poke around on our site for months or years before they want to reach out to us and give us their email or whatever, then so be it. But we 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 do have a weekly newsletter that we ask people to subscribe to. And it, it, once they're on the site, they can go to certain places where we clearly have a, a bit of a sales pitch for our firm, so to speak. Yeah, it's I've I've seen a similar phenomenon as well in some of our. Our business development, even even the digital context, like you, you, you need some way to make a connection with people so that they can come back regularly. You know, we do it by asking them to sign up for a mailing list, but it takes so long for someone to get comfortable and build trust that they're willing to work with you that it's it's really hard to force them into a linear campaign process. I mean, the the most common inquiry that we still get or that I still get online from people that are interested. I mean, it's almost like a form letter that that people send. Found your stuff a bunch of months ago, heard about one of the articles, read it, thought it was really interesting, signed up for your list, been following your stuff for six months. Now I have a problem. And that's right. And I'm that's wondering right. if you can if you can help me out with this. And like it's yeah. it's it's entirely on their own terms. It's triggered by when they had an issue that spawned them to actually take action. But they always kind of know, like, I, I've been following your stuff for a long time. I just wasn't actually ready back then. I wasn't going to be ready until something that happened in my life to make me ready. And now and now here I am. Michael, I couldn't agree with you more. It's, it's when the pain is great enough in someone's life that they're ready to act, right? So when you're marketing, it's it's – being out there and being top of mind, adding some value, but more times than not, it's waiting for the time The time is right for them, not the time right for you. So like we were talking about, we have a newsletter, but I mean, we've all gone to sites where, oh, that's kind of interesting, and they immediately want our your email address, and oftentimes like, well, I'm not... I'm not quite there in this relationship yeah. yet. You know? yeah. So boom, I'm, I'm going to go somewhere else and get the information elsewhere. And I think we've all done that before. And uh, we certainly don't want to be that, that firm that people say, well, I'm going to go to Kitsis site instead of Hanson McLean's because Hanson McLean wanted my email first. And, and so what does it take? Like, how do you actually get a radio show? I mean, if someone's listening to this and they're like, yeah, that sounds kind of neat. I like talking right, well, to people so, and interviewing so, people. Like, how do you, how do you get a, how do you get a radio show? I don't know if I'd bother these days. And here, so things have changed a lot. What's happening in the radio today? First of all, these companies are dying. They're, they're like the radio companies, the radio station. Correct. iHeartMedia, you know, they were bought by a private equity firm 10 years ago. And, you know, there's talk of them about to hit bankruptcy, yeah. restructuring the debt and everything else. Some of the other big ones, I can't remember, their names are escaping me right now, but they're struggling because terrestrial radio listenership is declining every quarter. So the re- and the revenues are declining. I mean, they are struggling. So what's happened is a lot of these radio stations have opened up their weekend programming to the highest bidder, whoever wants to pay to be on oh, there. So, so they're listen. To- why why sell advertising when you can just sell the time slot? <laughs> That's exactly what's happening. So I actually looked at a report this morning that a, a firm did for us on looking at some different markets, and we're looking at these different markets. Then who are the top talks? radio stations in town, how many financial shows are on <laughs> and who they're – one station had 10 financial shows on the weekend. Wow. Be- because because the reality in our industry is financial services pays well, especially the subset that are still doing commission-based products. Like I, I can pay for a pretty hefty radio show when I literally only need one listener per show to do business with me 
in a decent commission right. product and I make an ROI. You're selling it. You're stuck in an equity index annuity or non-traded REIT. Matter of fact, there is a guy in the Sacramento region who's on the same radio program or same radio stations we're on. He was kicked out of the industry for five years, lost his license for five years. So he's not FINRA licensed. He's just pure RIA. And all, he talks about fiduciary, et cetera, et cetera. And we had this retired doctor come and saw us. He said he needed us some help. And he'd been working with this so-called advisor. The guy had sold him 11 equity index annuity products. Because they're not FINRA licensed products. You can sell them when you're barred from FINRA. Three million bucks. And it was about to sell him another one. And this guy finally is like, yeah, I don't know if this feels good, you know. <laughs> and, of course, all his money is locked up for the rest of his life in these equity index news. But that's exactly what's happening right now. So you get some – there's a firm out there that sells life insurance. It's, you know, life insurance is going to solve every problem or whatever. So you're out there being a fiduciary, offering a 1% a year fee or whatever you're charging, and you're competing against someone who's going to make a 10-point 10, 10 right. uh, commission. And And – and they can literally out outbid you on radio show time. I mean, what what does it cost to to get it? But what it's all secondly, but what, what it's also doing though, it's degrading the value of the radio brand, right? So you know, traditional media, of course, Trump bashes them every day, but traditional media is not doesn't have the same trust level and respect as it used to have, right? So just because someone's on the radio or on TV. 20 years ago or 30 years ago, it was a big deal. Today, it's less and less so. Right. Because, because in the past, they, you know, the, the prime, well, when the model is advertising, you can't get advertising unless you've got listeners. You can't get listeners unless you've got actual good people appearing on your media channel. Real talent. Yeah. Real talent that, that does real quality where your brand is trusted. Now, when you're selling to the highest bidder who buys the slot directly, all the you know the the economics change and the and the incentives change. That's exactly right. So, and where we if you and you also want to take a look at radio is where we're spending our time. I mean, you go buy a car today, and your phone's going to pair with the radio for Pandora or whatever, right? Yeah. Mine, mine, I think tries to open up Pandora Pandora every time I start my car, and we're all listening to podcasts and everything else. So it's it's changing. So. One of the challenge, one of the things I talk with our marketing team about is I often will hold up my iPhone and say, we need to appear in people's lives here the same way that we appeared in people's lives on their drive time and right. the radio for years. Because we would always would advertise during the week. It was kind of more tombstone type advertising, but as a brand awareness and as to, to, to get them to our, our weekly radio program. So for someone that is interested, can you just give some context? Like what, what does it cost if, if someone wants to get like an hour on a radio show. I mean, I just don't even know. This is like a thousand dollars a week, ten thousand dollars a week. It depends. So, for as an example, we were in conversations with a very large station in Los Angeles, the largest station in Los Angeles, big powerhouse, been around forever. They said, unless you want to talk about a million dollars plus a year, we're not having a conversation with you. Like a, a million, at least you get a year's worth of shows. But <laughs> that's yeah. So there's, you know, it'd be a, and it'd probably be a package of show and advertising. But right. for that station, the, these, you know, the starting point was a million bucks. And and they said, by the way, we're not interested in anything for this year. It'd have to be for the following year. Yeah. So, so I mean, that's like a twenty thousand dollars a week if for the show and the advertising, and you have to buy a year's worth. Yeah. Okay. I'm presuming that's on the high end, though. Not everybody's quite that bad. If you're in Ditchwater, USA, you know, then it's 500 bucks a week or so okay. or a month. So it, 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 it's all based upon 
the size of the market. And they just sell whatever they can get away with, right? right. I mean, that's well, crazy. yeah, it's it's a market, so the price is whatever the market will bear. Yeah, hundred percent. So, so as you commented, you with this shift of like now, I get in my car and my smartphone pairs with my car and queues up Pandora or something. So I'm I'm presuming that's why you've you've been shifting to doing more digital marketing with a podcast as opposed to the traditional radio version. Yeah, but it's it's more than that because it, here's the challenge. Our best clients are not the ones that are following the financial news, right? Right. <laughs> our best client our best clients are the ones that hire us that know enough to to know they know they you know that they're wise enough to know something about the financial markets, so they have some degree of education there. But they want to hire you, and they want you to take care of it, and they want to go on with their own lives, whether they whether they're really highly educated in financial markets or not right. at all. But they want to hire you, and they say, "Look, let me know if there's an issue. Otherwise, I'm going to live my life, and let's get together every, twice a year, whatever you agree to." Those are our best clients. Those tend not to be the ones that are on the financial blogs they're not reading they're not watching cnbc all day long or fox business and right you know that they're not on yahoo finance or whatever they're going to these days so the challenge that we're finding with this change with with the digital marketing is how do we still appear in those people's lives talking to things that are that are relevant to them but still getting that awareness in their mind so that hey these are the financial guys that we need to, and gals we need to go talk to if we have a problem i i, I that that is one of the challenges i see if you're driving, if you know, you're driving to work, and there's two news stations in town, and you're kind of stuck. This was years ago. Now you've got a myriad of choices. Right, right. Is there still a dynamic though that, to the extent advisors are working with, you know, classically baby boomers, retirees, or people close to retirement, like, do prospective retirees still listen to radio more than podcasts? Because that was the me correct. Uh, yeah, hundred percent. Yes, there's no question. But, you know, that's going to change. Yep. <laughs> Another five years from now, they're up, you know, everyone's five years older. That's changing. That is the thing that's changing. So today, terrestrial radio still works. I doubt 10 years from now, we'll still be doing a terrestrial radio program. And I'll still be working. I never want to retire. So. Would you still, like, do you expect because by then you'll be doing a podcast or because you expect by then you'll just be on to entirely different marketing strategies? Probably different marketing strategies. Okay, so you're not you're not necessarily that upbeat on advisors doing podcasting for for the well, audience. Well, I think po- I think podcast. No, I think podcasts can be powerful because, and it might just be so as little as someone's got a client. Client says, you know, I've got this financial advisor. She's pretty good. Why don't you listen to her podcast to get to know yeah. her a bit? That's where I think a podcast for the tip, average, typical advisor. There's you know, a couple advisors and a couple assistants or whatever. That's where I think a podcast can be powerful. Because it, it, it gives clients a way to refer you without sort of the high stakes. Hey, call John. And everybody knows if you call John, then John's going to keep calling you back. And they're kind of afraid that like you've unleashed the sales hound on your friend. So it's a much lower stakes thing to just say, hey, John did this podcast. It's kind of neat. I think it'd be relevant for you. You might want to give it a listen. And then my friend can make their own decision about whether they find it interesting enough they want to follow yeah, up. I mean, I, it. I think that could be I think that could be a powerful marketing technique. I think that would be more powerful than someone spending a, for, a fortune trying to redo their website yet. Want once again? Yeah. 
<laughs> and yeah, and videos are obviously things are moving. A lot more is going to video. Some people just clam up on video. They just <laughs> so and, I think the podcast can be a great medium for a lot of it. And and I and I've got to ask as well. You know, you you mentioned it earlier, but direct mail. So I mean, when I started in the business, I started 17 years ago, and the second firm I worked with did lots of direct mail because we did basically a seminar marketing process, send out direct mail, direct mail brought people to the seminar, seminar we did our thing and talked to, back then it was about revocable living trusts and estate planning was was kind of the focus of the of the seminar and then a subset of them want to come in and do business and then you do business with them and wash, rinse, repeat. So what what are you, what are you direct mailing for? Like, is this attached? To- Annuity salesmen are doing the same thing today, are they not? You're, every week I get it. Yeah, even I, I actually out. get some of the invites every now and then. That's always fun. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. So so what are so what does your direct mail process look like? So obviously you're not you're not queuing up for product sales in your business. No, but like we're doing a retirement symposium. What do we call it? The art of retirement, and we're doing it at the the Sacramento. So we got a couple things that we're doing right now this fall of 2017. One is the art of retirement that we're doing at a large museum in Sacramento. Okay. So we're using direct mail there to get people there. And it's it's going to be very little on financial issues and mostly on just kind of the, the changing face of retirement. Okay. And, you know, come here, come here from a, someone who's been doing this for X amount of years, et cetera. We're also doing an event in Denver, Colorado with Terrell Davis, football player. And we're doing direct mail to get people to that event there. Okay. So those are a couple examples. Where so it's been- so it's not necessarily direct mail like, hey, I'm going to open up my mailbox and Hanson McLean you know, has put a mailer in there that says, hey, we'd love to work with you for your life savings. Here's where to call us. Like it's it's not a – Well, we're testing. Are you testing that we're too? We're testing that if we can figure that out. Well, it would be a lot easier if you could do it that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we years ago we did. You know, funny direct mail works for a while and then it doesn't work anymore. You got to keep kind of yeah. changing. But we called it the anti-dinner campaign, and we literally sent people letters saying, "Hey, we're not going to buy you a dinner, <laughs> right?" So we're not one of these firms that says, "Come, we're come to the steakhouse. We're going to give you free steak." We figure you you can buy your own dinner, but if you'd like to come and talk to a financial advisor about your financial issues, <laughs> something along those I lines, love it. come see us. And we had great response. We right, really I can envision like, you know, our competitors waste money on food. We invest in you, our clients. Want to come talk to us? It's something like, yeah, yeah. It was something along those things. Yeah. So, so a lot of the direct mail is still driven towards getting people to events and then events is ultimately the, the funnel to get them through. But, but I guess the point, like people are still, are still responding. You can still get turnout at events by spending money on direct mail. Yeah, and I think you can. I mean, you you can waste a lot of money in direct mail, but you can waste a lot of money in digital marketing yep. too. So, I just think the people that think everything's in the future is digital, it's I don't. I, I think there's still room for the old fashioned direct mail. So, when you're doing all these different things, you you've got the the radio program, you're doing direct mail, and then the events that are attached to direct mail, you're experimenting with digital marketing. You know, the you look at the industry benchmarking studies and. The number basically hasn't moved for 10 plus years. The average advisory firm spends around one and a half percent of its revenue on marketing, give or take a tiny bit. It, it even holds pretty consistent as firms grow. So can I ask me, like, I don't even know how you budget around this, if it's percentage of revenue or something else, but like how much money does a firm like yours spend on marketing to to drive this kind of machine? 
a lot. <laughs> so I think part of the challenge, and so here, I mean, one of the challenges that we've gotten uh, faced the last few years, just to be real frank here, is as we kind of capped out in Sacra- Sacramento, where our main office is, we have three offices actually in Sacramento, particularly with the way that we know how to market. Right. And so we went into a couple other markets, and it is taken us longer to have success than we would have thought otherwise yes. to be real frank so that so the when you look at how much money you need to invest to get the return it's it it it, it, it can be kind of staggering it, it just takes a long time if you think about what we sell we don't no one can come test drive us like a, yeah. you can a car you can't touch it or smell i mean it's it's a really interesting business you're talking about someone's life savings and so much of of this is comes down to trust can i trust this individual, can I trust this firm? Does it feel right to me? Right? I mean, that's a lot of it for people. It's this kind of, I feel good about these. So it, it takes a long time to attract new clients. I mean, one of our largest sources of new businesses is referrals, just like sure. you know, most advisors, that's all their business, referrals. I mean, it's still the best place to get clients. But all these other marketing channels is, is other avenues where it helps for your referrals as well because – Someone says, oh, I'm with that firm that does such and such. Why don't you check them out here? Well, and, I, and I presume, I mean, at, at $2.5 billion of AUM, how many clients is that in just terms of? We have about 4,500. 4, okay. So, I mean, there's a there's a very sizable base there that can at least do some of, call it the traditional, just clients referring clients kind of thing. Yeah. And we'll do, and we do events for our platinum clients where we'll have... Actually, well, we've done quite a few events on just kind of the new retirement and some things to have a successful retirement. We call it our future framework. You know, we're living longer lives, living healthier lives. What does retirement mean to us today? It's not our our parents' retirement. And so we'll, we'll do some things like that where we'll have some of our larger clients. We'll ask them to bring a friend and those sort of events. Yeah, it's you know, the, the whole phenomenon of, of spending on marketing to me is, is, is fascinating because like, you know, I, I've been. I was spending some time last year looking at just a lot of research on how the business models work in a lot of the tech industry, where they run their own version of recurring revenue models, very similar to to advisory firms mm-hmm. in many ways. You know, our recurring revenue is annual AUM or retainer fees. Theirs is you know forty nine dollars a month on your software, and so you when when. The way the tech industry looks at it is they might say something like, okay, like the tech industry version of advisory client. Okay, your average revenue per client is, you know, called $10,000, a million dollars, a 1% on a million dollar client, just to make the math easy. An advisory firm typically runs a a 25% profit margin. So a single client is worth $2,500 a year in profits. And most of us have you know, 95 to 98% retention rates. So that client's probably going to stick around for 20 years, which means you can make a, a $2,500 a year profit for the next 20 years. So so like a single client over their lifetime is worth upwards of $50,000 of hard dollar profits plus growth as their, as their portfolio grows over time. So when you say this client is worth Fifty thousand at one million dollar client is worth fifty thousand dollars of net profits after all expenses. How much money would you spend to get one? Exactly. That's exactly. Be able to like if you spend forty thousand dollars to get one client, you're making a twenty five percent ROI. Except most of us don't have the capital to do that because it, it takes you like twenty years just to get profitable on that. 
one way to look at it also is if you know what are firms trading at yep. these days, right? So what's the enterprise value? So if you look at a twenty five hundred dollar profit, let's say on a client, well, what times what's uh, yeah, you know, depending on your size, maybe it's maybe, seven times EBITDA, give or take whatever, a little, depending on your yeah. So I mean that's one way to certainly look at it. So then the, then the question is how much are you willing to spend to bring on that client? We're, we're, we're t- we typically think we typically think of about eighteen months worth of revenue. If we can do eighteen months worth of revenue, we'll do that all day long. And is that's a fascinating thing, right? So that's every million dollar client that pays one percent, you're willing to spend fifteen thousand dollars just to get the client in. Yeah, matter matter of fact, if if you want to line up enough, I'm happy to just give you the yeah. check. So yeah. yeah, but but again, like that's such a contrast to me from. What most advisory firms do, where we're spending one and a, one to one and a half percent of our revenue on marketing, right? Like if 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 you've got a marketing system that works, that gets ten grand a year for fifteen thousand dollars, yeah. I mean, I'm kind of the same way. Like if I got a thing that works, like back up the truck, I'll I'll pour as much money onto that until it stops working, because at some point, marketing hits diminishing returns. There's the challenge, though, Mike. Right. So it's not right. like. It's not like, oh, you know, I've got an extra $5,000 this month, so why don't I – oh, I'll, I'll go put it with this one marketing strategy. It's going to yield me X. It, th- that doesn't really exist, right? So you can try lots of different things, right. and I think that's where the challenge is. It's not that advisors wouldn't be willing to spend the money. It's just that they don't really know where to spend the money. Right. What What's going to work, and how long do you have to spend on it just to figure out if it's working, right? Because it's it's – it's lump at best. It's kind of lumpy when for so much of our marketing, right? When when one client is you know a half million or a million dollar client is a five to ten thousand dollar a year annually recurring client. Like they're really valuable, but you might spend lots of money and not get one, and then spend a bunch and get two, and it averages out. But if you got the wrong sequence, like you're 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 trying to spend ten grand to get a ten thousand dollar client, you could be out eighteen thousand dollars and you haven't gotten one yet. It takes time too. It's not like you just write some check and <laughs> you know that for every dollar's worth you spend, you get you know a certain number of clients back. If that existed, it'd be easy. We'd all be doing it, but it doesn't exist. So it's a so challenge. you mentioned as well that you've you've got you do some events for platinum clients. I presume that means more broadly you you segment clients in the firm. So what what does that segmentation process look like in a firm like yours? Well, we look at anyone who's got a million dollars or more with us as platinum clients, 500 to a million as A clients, 300 to 500 as B clients, and then below 300, for the most part, we, they're, we're known as our select clients. And they have, a same, they have the same kind of portfolios, but a, a different service level than the uh, other clients. You just say, so how do you, how do you differentiate amongst them? So I guess select clients get fewer meetings, platinum clients get access yeah. to your some of your events, like what else do you do or do you do other things that differentiate amongst those segmented tiers more? We spend a lot of time with our, our whole team about the value of a platinum client. And we've got you know, several hundred clients that are over a million dollars with the firm. So we still have a great size. Of these. But we all have a lot of smaller clients, these select clients. Our account minimums are 100,000. But we still have a lot of people in that space. And so our select clients, most of the reviews and stuff are over the phone. Okay. They tend to be more junior advisors. You know, we've hired a f- few people out of college the last couple of years. They tend to work on those okay. teams to help. So it gives a, a bit of great you know, training ground for some of those younger advisors. And then the seasoned advisors are the ones that work with the, the larger 
platinum clients. And we always, you know, one of the things that we're big on is looking for little ways to show that we're listening and little tokens of appreciation. So we call them, we have a, we call them just because gifts. Actually, I was talking with our marketing team. I said, we need a better name than this. <laughs> but we empower and we track this. We empower everyone to, to listen for an opportunity when you can send someone some token gift. And I was at the UPS store in my hometown a couple weeks ago. And this acquaintance of mine comes and says, Scott, oh, you know, your advisor, Dave, I love He is the nicest guy. My son's taking this class over in London. We're going to go visit. We were telling him about it. The next thing I know, I get this book in the mail from Dave on London, such and such. That was just the nicest thing. And I kind of chuckled to myself because it was a very, it's, it's a process that he was following. That's all. And it's, you know, we sent a lot of books because he listened for something that someone has an interest in or if they're going somewhere. And we sent him a little book from Amazon. And it it shows the person not that not only that you care about them, but that you were you were actually listening to their conversation. You cared about them as a person. Yeah. So you know we don't send a lot of cookies or that sort of stuff. We look for things that that show that we li- we do actually do quite a few books. We look for opportunities to send a book to people. And I I think it's interesting that a- and you'd be and I think any any advisor practice it's amazing. But again, this is a trust business, right? Our best clients are the ones that really trust us. Don't second guess. Why is this in my portfolio, Scott? You know, the S&P is this and you've got this in here. You know, our best clients are the ones that don't second guess us. And those are the ones that trust us the most. And sometimes it's these little things that just show people that, wow, my advisor cares about me as a person, not just as a number. I find it interesting, though, just that a piece of your segmentation is is simply the the seniority of the advisor. I, I feel like, you know, that's a way to segment clients that not – not a lot of firms do like we tend to we tend to take an experienced advisor they get a whole chunk of clients with a with a wide range and they might say like well I'll I'll see my A clients more and I'll see my C clients less as opposed to saying no 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 if you're a senior advisor just you just focus your time on A or A and B clients your C clients need to be shifted to a younger advisor that is exactly what we did we shifted a bunch of clients and i think i learned I, I have personally have about 20 clients right now. And when I say I have my, I have another certified financial planner that actually does all the heavy right. lifting. I'm just once a year, the relationship guy, just to kind of say hi, and I'm still around here. And it's just to kind of keep my, make sure I'm, I'm yeah, still right, active. Make sure you don't forget right. what it's like sitting across from a client. <laughs> yeah, 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 of course. Yep. Absolutely. But I found how it, it really wasn't that much of a challenge transferring these clients. None of them really liked it, right? No one wants to get transferred yeah. off, but they still stuck around and they're still happy clients. So, well, and I feel like that's one of the biggest challenges most most advisors go through in those transitions is is it's scary to transition the client because you're worried the client's going to get upset and not not stay. Like, what do you mean I'm being shifted to Johnny? Like, I know what this means. I'm not important anymore, and 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 that clients are going to get upset. So, does that just not happen? Is that just a fear that's an unrealistic fear? We didn't experience it. So we first did this with my my own clients 10 years ago, and boy, we hardly lost any. And then we went through a process where our senior advisors, a big chunk of their smaller clients, and they, look, a lot of advisors, they, they just aren't servicing their smaller clients very well. Right. And some of them, they're just downright neglecting them. And particularly if they're not in portfolios that are part of models that are getting rebalanced properly, then they're really not doing a very good service. So if you can push those to somebody else who's got the time and the desire to work on these, then... They're going to be better off, better service there. And when I did the transition, I just told the clients, I said, look, as my role has changed over the years, and I'm afraid I'm not able to provide you the same level of service that you deserve. 
I'm not here as much as I need to be. Is what you need me to be. So in fairness to you, I'm going to, we brought in so-and-so to help, help work this. I'm still here. If you ever have any other issues or questions, feel free to call. I'm not going anywhere, but you know, Bill Smith or Judy Smith, she's the one who's going to be taking care of, of your, your issues on a daily basis. Well, and I, and I find there, you made a good point there that, that I think often gets missed, which is you don't want to, you don't want to move this smaller client out of your client base because you feel bad that you're, you're, sending them off to another advisor in the firm that that's less senior, but we all seem to, to forget or ignore like, but it's not like you're meeting with them that much anyways. Like, let's not kid ourselves. Often those are the most neg- neglected clients. Cause you know, deep down that it, <laughs> yes, like you right. lose money every time you answer the phone when they contact you. So you don't call them much for meetings and you try to shift their inbound calls to some other staff member in the firm anyways. And and if they're working with a more junior advisor in the firm where that's actually a good client for that advisor, the client ends out getting better served anyways. Yes, from a slightly less experienced advisor, but one who's actually excitedly, enthusiastically servicing them, which you're often not at that point, either deliberately or just subconsciously. And I think you're providing them a good service. I mean, particularly you talk to someone who's, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that we've got a number of clients that are, are smaller because if they weren't here, where are they going to go? Yeah. They're going to get sold. They're going to go to the bank. They're going to get sold. The bank broker is going to sell them. Not, I'm not throwing all bank brokers under the bus. The model of the bank brokers is, is, is not a good model. It's rife for conflicts and they get sold something that they don't need and all that kind of yeah. stuff. So this overall structure, you said you've, 70 employees, about 20 of them are advisors. So what, what's, what's the other 50? Like that's a, that's a lot of other, it's a lot of other people. Well, we've got about, we've got about 10 or so in our marketing department. Okay. Well, and I guess that's a big thing in and of itself. Like you're nearly two and a half billion dollar advisory firm with 10 people in your, in your marketing department. Yeah. Maybe we, well, we just hired a couple more. We hired someone who's a digital specialist. And- Whereas for a number of firms I know, like they'd have, Two, maybe three at that size. So I, I guess that's part of your point of like, if the if the mothership is going to provide the the clients, then you have to invest heavily into the marketing. Well, and I think we we've always operated. I mean, as a business. So when McLean and I first started, it was the two of us and one assistant. You know, and we most most of us start. Yep. But from from day one, it wasn't. Well, this is my client. That's your client, and well, let's share expenses. I see. You see a lot of firms are just clusters. They're not really firms. They they share space together. They throw money into sh- on the technology, but yeah, they're kind of they're independent advisors who share overhead. There's a lot of firms like that, right? And so very challenging to have any sort of marketing strategy when you're just sharing expenses. Yeah. <laughs> so I think so. When you're, back to your point, with a lot of firms, maybe they'll have one or two people. I think that often you'll see that in some of these clusters. And so what else? So there's. Ensembles, I think, is a more appropriate yeah. term. But. So, so you've got ten over in marketing. What else? What's the rest of that organizational and infrastructure? We've got look I think like? five or five in our IT department. We've got. I feel like that's pretty good five, size operation. Five in team. the IT department. That's just all the people it takes to make sure that 
computers are working and software is working and things like that? Or are you like homegrowing yeah, no technology tools in the No, no. I don't want to homegrown any technology. I don't want to, I don't want to build anything. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things we always say to the IT team, if we can buy or rent it, we're going to buy or rent it. We are not creating stuff here. Now, there's still things you have to do because there's – Levels of customization, right. Yeah, but for the most part, I mean, we want to just buy stuff off the shelf. So I think you have five people in marketing. We've got our investment departments, got a couple people, full-time people there. And then we've got you know, operations and customer service. Okay. And client service. And, and what is the, what's the technology infrastructure for you guys? And by the way, our customer service, even though we're a large firm, we just went through a process, an outside firm the research on us, we interviewed a bunch of different clients. We have a net pro- net promoter score was eighty five, which is if wow. Anything about net, net promoter? Yeah, that's a monstrous number. Of- I know. We're going to start. Mark, we'll start throwing that out there. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so can you explain really fast net promoter score, maybe for folks that aren't familiar? It's a, yeah. It's, and there's actually there's a great book on it. It was really kind of big about ten years ago, I think. But a lot of firms, bigger firms, still rely upon this. It's just essentially how likely someone is to refer you to refer a customer to your firm. Regardless of what businesses, how likely are you to refer somebody to this firm? And if you're very likely to refer somebody, it is the number one indicator of long-term you know, client loyalty if you're willing to refer somebody. So, and, and it really comes down to a lot of its customer service and level of trust and those sorts. And do you recall what's the what was the book on it? Because I don't think I've seen. I, I'm familiar with NPS, but I hadn't I hadn't seen the book before. I don't remember. I thought it was probably called. Was it the, the the question or oh like the ultimate question? Yeah, it might have been like, that. Yeah, it that was it was all about yeah. the one net promoter score <laughs> yeah, yeah. question because the whole point yeah. of this like you ask people one question about how willing they'd be to to refer you to a friend not not even just in our industry where we talk a lot about referrals but like how how likely would you be to to tell your you to recommend us to your friends and 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 it's a, like you want everybody on a one to ten scale and like you want everybody to to score you nines and tens if it's if you get a seven or eight you don't get any credit for it if you get a six or below then it's a negative detractor the detractor and, yeah, and yeah. You, know, you want your you want your nines and tens to out to grossly outweigh everything else yeah yeah All right, we'll we'll put a, a link to the ultimate question book in the show notes so for those who are listening this is episode 36 of the podcast so if you go to kitsis.com slash 36 and Scroll down the section on on resources from this episode. We'll have a link out there to the book if you want to check out Net Promoter Score a little bit more. So you so you guys actually did the whole process of surveying clients to to ask them the the question, the ultimate question. Yeah, we've done a number of surveys over the years. We use outside firms to do it, like folks in the in, folks in the industry, or like enti- uh, just entirely no. outside of the industry. Correct. Outside the industry. So any, anyone you care yeah, to recommend yeah. that you've actually thought does a good job working with advisory firm like yours for doing this? Oh, man. I'm trying to remember the name of the company that we, we, we used. I found them online and they had the best – the one we used a few different years in a row. found them online and they had the best user experience online. I thought, if this is your user experience online – it's funny. I talked to – remember, I talked to some high, some expensive firm. They wanted to have this conference call. One guy was in Chicago. One guy was somewhere else, you know, and – well, you know, just to kind of get started, it's going to be a $40,000 project to do this. And this other firm was just like phenomenal user experience online. Yeah. And it was, you know, it was six or $8,000 or something. It wasn't expensive. It's, it's funny to me that, you know, I feel like we still underestimate 
almost everybody checks us out online, even if they're going to meet with us ultimately in person, decide to do business with us. Like people check you out online. And if you're, if your website doesn't hold up sort of the core brand promise, like the rest of it doesn't go so well. They're never going to call. They're never going to, they're never going to follow through. We all go online first yeah. for everything. Yeah. I mean, I, I still laugh at how many firms have things on their website. Like when we, we, we value transparency, but you can't find our fees anywhere on our website. <laughs> well, they say that they say that transparency is a fee for people understanding what they're paying is the number one thing for building trust. Yep. And a website also needs to be needs to do well on on mobile devices because the majority of people majority of people are searching on a mobile device. So, so what was your path into being a an advisor in the first place? Like, were you, did your, was your family in the industry? Did you like come in straight out of college? What was, what was the path for you to become an advisor? Well, first of all, it took me a while to get through college. I, I went to junior college for four years. So I, I was one of those kids in high school that didn't quite see the connection between my studies and my future life okay. for whatever reason. And there, was, there were some other things that were more fun and interesting to do. I guess. Yeah. You know, my, I'd get dragged into the counselor's office every year saying, why aren't you, you score well on these annual tests, but your grades are this, what's going on? I actually had a little tree tree business in junior college. I bought this small business. I had almost no money, but I, I finagled the deal. I bought it on a percentage of revenue. And I ran that for a couple of years and then sold it for cash up front to help finance my last couple of years of college. So, and I, and I was in the tree tree business. It was, I was making decent money, but it was one of those things where I was going to have to really take some big leaps to grow it. And I thought, I don't, this is not the industry I want to stick in. I loved, I always enjoyed numbers. I enjoyed people. And the tree trimming business was actually, it was a great lesson for me because it was down in the Palos Verdes area of, of Los Angeles where a lot of wealthy people. And so I got to know, first of all, some very wealthy people and realized that they were just like everybody else, put their pants on one leg at a time. Hmm. And I also learned some things about customer service that price isn't the number one concern with a lot of people, yeah. particularly with people with money. It's, you know, if you show up on time, that was half the game. So if you're supposed to be there at 8 o'clock and you're there at 8 o'clock, they're like blown away. Wow, someone showed up, contractor shows up. So I learned some good lessons through there. And then I, I studied finance in school. And I, I remember I interviewed with some of the wirehouses. And I thought, I don't know if I want to – I didn't really like their model. I'd just talk to some brokers. that never met their clients. And it was, just talked to them over the phone, selling product. Oh, so I guess – so when, when were you when were you searching? 1990. Okay, so like – Kind of in the heyday of wirehouses cold calling for that's exactly business. It. Their their training was we'll send you back to New York for eight weeks or whatever it was and teach you how to cold call. I mean that was their training. Instead, I went to work for a life insurance company that had a big financial planning push at the time. They were they taught CFP courses and whatnot, and I actually took CFP courses in, so, in college. So too, which was which was that like Connecticut General or one of those? Lincoln National. Okay. Lincoln National. And it was a good agency in the Bay Area that I went to work for. And I, it was a very much financial planning focus. And I was there for three years. Okay. But I actually, the challenge, and I'm not throwing Lincoln under the bus, but the challenge with the insurance industry is insurance is the answer for, for yeah. everything. Right? So, oh, well, that's, you your, know, whatever well, that's your business you, model. I guess you were right on the cusp of UL was declining. VUL hadn't quite become the thing yet, but was starting to. Yeah. And I didn't always buy into the stuff the yeah. insurance company thought about their products. So I didn't last there too long. So I, Pat McLean was working there at the same time. And we left not because we had this great desire to build this great firm, but it was, we just didn't really like this. We didn't like the environment there and the way it was so product 
focus and we said let's why don't we just go out on our own and figure out another way to do this okay so where did so where did you go from from there well, I set up an RAA back in 1993, but was also registered, so I guess they would call them hybrid these days, registered with Securities America, a broker-dealer. And we were with them for 10 years, maybe longer than that. Yeah. So they were willing, I guess, to let you have an – you weren't using their corporate RAA, like you were your own no. separate RAA, but you but you kept brokerage business through Securities America? That's exactly right. And, and why did – like what led you to do that as opposed to just – cutting the cord entirely from the FINRA side and, and and staying on the RIA side of the business. Back in nineteen ninety three, I don't I don't think I knew anyone who did that. Yeah. Well <laughs> so yeah, I that's guess part, that's part of it. I mean, we still sold we sold variable annuities back in those right. days. And, and so I don't even think we ever thought of that. It's pretty rare back then. It it so it more came down to like, hey, we want to do some asset management business and that wouldn't be good to do in our broker dealer. So we're going to do that over here. But then the rest of our business we're still doing on Securities America because you still got to have a broker dealer to do your business. That's exactly right. That's exactly how Okay. Except the RA side outgrew the other side, I take it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> That's, yeah. So so how long did you did you stay with Securities America? And, and yeah, I guess like, how, how long did you stay with Securities America? We were with Securities America, I believe, until 2007, is that right? 2006, somewhere in there. And, and what ultimately led you to, to cutting the core? Like, if it was working well, what what led you to, to And I, I, have, I have a lot of respect for a lot of those folks at Securities America. I think they're good out for it. it was, we were just getting to the size where we had our own kind of business processes that we thought were best for us. And it was a challenge when you're underneath someone else's Highly regulated FINRA, it just got complicated for us. So it was kind of not having control over your compliance processes, basically. That was a big thing, and that and the this, the economies when you get to a certain size, and when you're doing you know not hardly any transaction business anymore. Then how how big was the RA at that point? Do you remember? Like, did you cut the cord at five hundred million we or like about a billion? A, no, we were about a billion. We were about a billion, I think. So where was so? What was driving the growth at, at that point? I mean, to to go out on your own with an RAA and start and start kind of from scratch with just a couple of years of experience at Lincoln National. So we kind of stumbled in, of course, stumbled in. I guess you know, <laughs> we're hard luck, no, hard work, and opportunity meet, right? Yep, yep. <laughs> it's a it's a wonderful, blessed intersection. Yes. <laughs> yeah, not necessarily luck, but you're when you're out there enough, eventually something's going to come come your way. We started Pat and I, Pat McLean and I, started working with Pacific Bell which is now part of AT&T, and Pacific Bell was going through this, you know, just massive deregulation in the telecommunications space, big change from, you know, the way telecommunications work. So there was a tremendous downsizing, and they had done a lot of hiring 30 years prior. So you had a lot of these employees in their mid-50s that were getting these essentially retirement offers. It's pretty much, here's a retirement offer that you can take today or you might get fired tomorrow, right? So, so we became experts at their pension plans and got to understand all the nuances there better than most of the people in their HR department. We did a lot of educational workshops, and so we got to be known as the people to go to. So you kind of had this niche around, you know, tenured Pac Bell employees that were at risk for downsizing. Exactly right. And was it like. Was there was that actually geographically local to you as well? Like is Pac Bell there in the area or just 
you heard about this and went after them regardless They're everywhere. of the war. Utility employees are everywhere, right? So telecommunications employees are every town in every city. So what ended up happening actually is we created the Hansel Clean Retirement Network back in those in the 90s to help other advisors, teach other advisors how to service retirees from what was then the the regional bells, the the baby bells, now most of it's all part of AT&T, to help them figure out how to help help clients transition through these retirement offers. And so we ended up with a network of of a couple hundred advisors and about you know 40 that were doing a lot of business. And I think about $5 billion was rolled out into that that advisor that, that, through that oh, network. Uh, so that so you, took, you took what you figured out about how to advise retirees coming out of some of the baby bells and then just literally made that like a – a training program for other advisors. Join the network. We'll teach you how to how to do this turnkey system to work with the retiring employees, and then y'all can go off and do your own thing because we can't reach all of them in every city, anyways. That's exactly right. And what what was the business model to that? Like, were you was this like a TAMP, and they did the rollouts, and then you would manage the money? Was this like a franchise licensing kind of arrangement? This was a marketing arrangement. It was a percentage of revenue. And we still have a number of advisors that are part of our retirement okay. that we work with utility companies. So it's still an active part of our business. But you know, back I think when we were at our, our kind of our, our zenith, there was a when AT&T, what was then the regional bell operating companies were doing a lot of these downsizing. Okay. Interesting. So you just you had a whole whole turnkey platform for doing doing the planning. And I guess if people are still looking for a way to get trained and find their way into a niche. This is still on the table for them. Like the, you can still go join. Yeah, the- and we specialize. Yeah, and I actually think the electric utility markets is a few years off. I think we'll see some disruption there, and I think you'll see the same kind of thing. Oh, yeah, I guess a few more years of solar pricing getting compounding cheaper, and then suddenly all the downsizing from the electric utilities will begin. These power companies don't know what their future is, and the 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 average age of employees is extremely old, and they tend to be really. They're, actually, they're great kind of clients. They tend to be good savers. Mm. You go to work for the utility company not to get rich. Right? Yeah, you you work you work you, you, you take to, that utility company job because you like the stability and and yeah. subtly save, mm-hmm. so you get those, as you put it, those those good hardworking long term savers. And the utility companies, they set their rates based upon not what the market <laughs> right. sets, but based upon what your your costs are. So you have these tend to have these nice fat pensions right. and, and great med- retirement, medical, and everything else. Interesting. Interesting. So like the whole focus of the firm early on was basically building around this niche in pack bell and utilities? Yes. We were doing that before we did the radio program. The reason we started doing the radio program is we realized that there's a finite number of these people that are retiring. <laughs> Eventually, they're going <laughs> to run out of them. And so we wanted to diversify and have some other sources of, of clients. So, so you started with the niche focus and then broadened later as, as I guess you just got worried. You're, there's, only, there's only so many sizable pensions to roll out in large 401k plans before you just literally run out of long tenure retiring that was exactly workers. Right. That, was exact, that was exactly our thought at the time. Yeah. Interesting. Whether it was the right thought or not, I don't know. But that's the decision we made then. So, well, so, so, are you still like, are you still working in the pack? Well, I guess it's not Pack Bell anymore. But are you still working in the utility space in oh, yeah. McLean as well? I mean, I know you said the retirement network is still there. But oh yeah, yeah, that's yeah. That's still a focus for you guys. We, too. we have about a we have about a seventy percent market share. I'm not exaggerating either. A seventy percent market share in the Sacramento region of, of retiree Pack Bell or wow. AT and T employee. So, how does that get going? I mean. I get it now. Like once, once 
almost everybody there eventually realizes that they all work with the same firm and it's you guys. So you're, you're just kind of the ones to call and they all call. Like it, it, now it's a little easier. Yeah. I got it. I, like, I, how do, I mean, how do you get that door open in the first place to, to get that kind of traction in a, in a niche, like a utility company? All right. So you, <laughs> so, so I've mean, heard before that people say that successful people do those things that unsuccessful people are not willing to do, right? We probably all heard yep. that statement before. We've done as, things as, as simple as showing up at a yard where the trucks are in the morning with a box of donuts and a bunch of flyers for an upcoming workshop and chatting people up and say, hey, you got to come to our educational workshop about your pension plan. You get invited in, but you get someone to bring you in where you can shove flyers in everyone's mailboxes. <laughs> Talk your way into doing a lunch and learn at lunchtime for some manager for your, your team. It's just all a bunch of just kind of raw hustle work, basically. Yes, there's guerrilla marketing. I hate to say it. It's just yeah, raw hustle. But I guess the the flip side to it is like it's all raw hustle in a focused direction, or like it, it's one hundred percent. It's not. It's yeah. not like you're trying to do lunch and learns at any possible business you can get your door your foot in the door. You're just hitting every possible angle to go after one sizable business that you know has a giant pocket of opportunity. And I think, you know, Michael, I think that is such a great opportunity for people around the country that an advisor is looking to grow their, their business. If there's some employer in town that's got an, you know, sort of an older workforce, they're all going to be retiring at some point in time. (laughs) And if they're, if you kind of understand the pay structure there and whatnot, it's, there's, it's a great way for someone to do some marketing just to get to know those people. So so what would you say to the advisor that says, yeah, but I, I don't want to bet my business on one company, on one employer? Like I'm, I'm, a, I'm afraid if I make my whole business around the, the one big employer in town, like what happens if they fail or they go out of business? I don't know. If they pick the wrong – if they pick the right employer, I mean, then pick two. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, presumably they're going to have some business – already and some business coming in from some referrals and stuff. So, you know, if they're thinking about doing, spending some money on marketing before they spend a fortune on anything else, I do workplace marketing. I think it can target a marketing to a workplace. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, at worst as, as you guys evolved, you know, you, you moved beyond the niches you grew and did the radio program and the rest, but I'm going to presume like it was a little easier to launch into other the radio program and other marketing opportunities after you already had a couple hundred million dollars from your niche. Yeah. Cause you have a little bit of revenue coming yeah. in. Yeah. That's helpful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's no question. Yeah. So, so what came next for you in this, in the growth cycle? So you, you, you started with the niche in pack bell and utility companies. Then you did the radio program. Some point along the way, you you moved away from Securities America and just focused on the mm-hmm. on the RAA. So what 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 were the other milestones in the kind of that growth path for you? You know, so, so I started in the business in 1990. The year 2000, I was work. I look back and I was working like a dog, right? Most people when you start, you're yep. working a lot, and I kind of realized that you know this isn't number one. It's probably not sustainable. Number two, there's a lot of other things that I f- find valuable in life. Mm-hmm. And signed up for the strategic coach, Dan, Dan Sullivan, strategic coach, both my business partner and I did, and did his program for a year. We were, we were with Dan Sullivan himself in, in Chicago. And it taught me a couple of things. One is delegate everything. <laughs> Unless I'm excellent at it and love doing it, delegate it away. It's that and then taking time off, taking free days. And so I really focused on those things. And it freed me up enough to 
you mentioned the reverse mortgage company earlier. Yeah. That's what that's what gave me the bandwidth to see this opportunity in this reverse mortgage industry and to create another company. And so So what did, so what did you do? Most of us just have enough trouble trying to figure out how to grow our advisory firms. How how did you end out like how did you end out in the reverse mortgage world? Okay, good question. So I'm not I'm not like necessarily the brightest guy in the world. I mean, I got to tell you, I just look for opportunity and you know, if you're stealing from me, you're stealing twice, okay? So I mean, I get a lot of ideas from others. So here's literally how this how we got started in the reverse mortgage company. And we grew up from start, from scratch and three and a half years later, it was acquired by Genworth Financial. We were the third largest in the country. Three and a half years. But there was an article in the Sacramento Bee newspaper about reverse mortgages. And up until this time, I always thought they were garbage. Why would anyone want to ever use them? And there's probably some advisors listening today that think yeah. that way. There are enough stories. I've talked to enough people that have literally changed their life, if not saved their life. One of our first customers at the reverse mortgage company was one of our employees. Their mother-in-law came to him and said, can you tell me about this? Their mother-in-law was in their 80s. She had been losing weight. And they thought maybe she's just getting old or whatever. What it turned out, she had $46,000 in credit card debt that she had racked up to trying to make her bills, you know, make, figure out how to, how to live. And she got to the point she couldn't get any more credit. And she was literally starving herself because when she ran out of money, she quit eating and she didn't want to be a burden to any of her family members. Okay. And she did not want to sell her house. She'd lived in the house for 48 years. You know, she went to the local supermarket, everything else. So that's reverse mortgage changed her life. And there are thousands of stories like that. So there was an article in the Sacramento Bee that highlighted how reverse mortgages worked. And I read this article. I thought, you know, if this is really true, this, this is a great product for the rest of society that doesn't have anything saved. I mean, they don't have any other options, right? So I called up the, they highlighted this people, this California reverse mortgage company. And I called him up and I said, hey, I'm a local advisor in town. I'm kind of curious about this. And I said, I'm, sounds like an intriguing business. And I took this couple to lunch. And they had this one article. They had received like 50-some-odd phone calls and had like 30-some-odd appointments off this. And I thought – I looked at – I had been writing a column every week for the Sacramento Bee for like seven years. And I had not had that many in seven years, right? Yeah. So I'm like, holy smokes. I just kind of look at the demand out there. And so I actually kind of tried to buy them. I made an offer to try to buy this little business. Didn't work out. So McLean and I started, started from scratch. We said, this is, this is an educational process here because people don't understand how they work. We said, if enough people understand how they work, these things are going to really take off. And so we started with just a couple employees and threw a couple dollars in that we had saved from our investment advisory firm. And, and it was, that was fun because most of us, when we started, if you start like me, but from kind of from scratch, you're, you're scrapping the whole way along. Yeah. <laughs> with this, we we funded it with some money, and it's, let's build the org chart from day one, and where do, who do the people we need? And we primarily back then we we were doing direct mail, radio, and a little bit of te- television. I think by the time we sold them, we were doing two million pieces of direct mail a month. We got really good at direct, two direct million mail. pieces of direct mail a month. That's right. That is yeah. a. And we were in. I think we were in fourteen or fifteen states. We built it to sell. So we from day one we said. This is going to be a very common retirement income product for many Americans. And we said there's going to be a large company that's going to want to enter the space and they're going to find it easier to buy than to build. And let's be that. So that's what we created. And three and a half years later, Genworth Financial bought it right before the financial crisis. That was that was well-timed <laughs> for you because most of the – well, I mean the proprietary reverse mortgage space basically vanished in the financial crisis. Everything is just the Heckam loans now. So that was, it was very well-timed 
So we, we, it was luck. Luck counts too, though, right? So we had originally, we signed earlier in the year. By the time we went from, you know, we did a, our initial letter of intent or LOI, whatever, earlier in the year. By the time we signed in the middle of the year, we didn't close until October 31st of that year, 2007. The wheels were coming off the mortgage. Oh, man. <laughs> so you're, like, and that was, you're, you're just praying that deal gets to close before they have second thoughts. We were, we were quite profitable when they first met us. We weren't when they bought us. And, I think had they known. Oh, so you could already see the fall off happening in your volume activity in our 07? response rates. Our response rates suddenly dropped because mortgage industries went from being the mortgage industry went from being your friend who's going to help you unleash the equity in your right. house to being the bad guys who just help you know are the ones responsible for your foreclosures. And all this, the people were starting to learn about. Oh, it. and so as 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 soon as people started worrying about. As soon as foreclosures started hitting the media, all of a sudden the idea of taking out a reverse mortgage was way less appealing. All of a sudden, the mortgage industry, they were bad people. They went from being good people to bad people. So our response rates just suddenly just dropped. And to be frank, I don't know if we would have survived the financial crisis had Genworth not come and bought it. But today, they're the largest one. Yeah, I was going to say, they're still going. Like this, this, this worked out for everyone. Yeah, yeah, it did. I think there's 500, 500 employees there or something like that. So- so as you as you look at the business today, where does it stand? You know, I know the I mean the greatest challenge for marketing driven firms in general is just the the larger you get, the harder it gets because growth rates are a fraction, right? It's a percentage. And the bigger the firm, the larger that denominator gets, the the more dollars you need to bring in on the top to to make the growth rates hold. So, well, there's a certain amount of dollars you need just to sustain. Yep. So if you get, if you really get good in analyzing your data and seeing what's leaving the firm every year, now we might talk about, oh, we all have 98 or 99% client retention, which is all great and fine and dandy, but sometimes the clients actually like spending yep. their money, right? So when you factor in like monthly withdrawals and money that comes out and then the beneficiary things appear, I mean, suddenly you've got seven, eight percent drag on your portfolio, yep. maybe on your book. So now you need to have some assets coming in every year just to stay flat. Yeah, you know, you, you lose so one, or, there's no one or two percent to attrition, and one or two percent to death, and a three or four percent withdrawal rate for a retiree centric practice, and all of a sudden it 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 adds up. That's that's exactly right, and so it's a real challenge just to even even stay. So I mean, the, the struggle we've had the last couple of years is how do we how do we grow beyond a six or seven percent annual growth rate? It's been a challenge because yeah, just the 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 numbers get large. It's one of those things that we've. We've been through similar struggles at, at Pinnacle as we close in on, on $2 billion in our management. And just you know, 15 years ago, we were a $200 million firm. So a 10% growth rate meant we needed $20 million. So if we need – in the average client was probably a half a million dollars back then. It's so like we needed 40 clients. So it's like, okay, so you two or three a month all year long, like three a month and we'll be okay. <laughs> right. And then, <laughs> and then, you know, years later we were a billion dollars. It's like, okay, so now if we, if now if we want 10% growth, we need a hundred million dollars and our average client is about a million. So now we need two millionaires a week, every week, all year long. And then as we close in on $2 billion and you just start doing the math of like, how many clients, like how many actual human being new clients do you need to sustain the growth rate yeah, at the wow. asset levels? And like the numbers get really big. And, and so most firms I find just the, the growth rate starts to slow down because that, that denominator gets so large. 
That's exactly right. So then you guys had a big transaction recently. Yeah, well, we signed it. We're waiting for regulatory approval to close it, but yeah. So can you talk about that a little of kind of what, what you've done and what you're thinking? Yeah, so it, it, it's interesting, Mike. In the last couple of years, we've talked to a variety of different firms. Firms have approached us, you know, why don't you come be part of us and here's where we're going and we'd like you to join our team. And frankly, I don't think we've found the, the quite right fit for us. You know, we talked to a variety of different PE firms and there's some other roll-ups out there that didn't, the structure didn't seem terribly exciting to us. You know, we just signed a deal with Parthenon Capital Partners to, they're essentially acquiring 70% of Hanson McLean with the plan of to infuse some capital, both to increase our marketing spend as well as some acquisitions. So we're about two and a half billion roughly. They want to help us grow to five, 10 billion and, and see where we can take it from there. But I think what it does for, I think what was exciting to, to us about this, like I said, I, early on, I'm 50 years old. I think my, my, I think I'm just getting started in a lot of ways in life. You're almost at a point when your firm gets to a certain size, and Michael, I think you understand this. It's like th- there's the margin that you know you got to make all this. You got payroll, you've got all these expenses you got to make, and it's like if we really put the pedal down on our marketing and bring our our margins way down, just to really invest in the future, and we go through another downturn. <laughs> we're gonna have to cut way back on marketing, and we're probably gonna have to downsize some. Yeah. You know, that, that profit, I mean, as much as we talk about the the profit margins of advisory firms as profits, like it's, it's not a coincidence we tend to run 25% profit margins because that's the 25% buffer if the market goes down so that you don't have yeah. to blow up your firm. Like it's, it's, it's the buffer zone. That's exactly right. So, you know, I'm also at a point where I've got some personal savings and stuff. It's like, how much do I want to, how much do I want to bet the farm? And I don't need to... I don't need some fancy car. I don't need anything else. I have, I have no material needs, essentially, yep. right? So more money is not going to necessarily make my life any better, but you take it all away and it's good. <laughs> that, that'll probably still make it worse. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, correct. So, I mean, that's realistic. To be frank, that's quite a bit of it. And McLean and I would often talk about doing some growth. It's like, well, how how much do our profits we want to bring down? And when it started getting... Anytime we got to a certain number, we started to get a little queasiness. And we lived through the financial crisis and the dot-com era, and we know what it's like leading firms through those times. And I don't think either one of us had the risk tolerance. So so selling a 70% stake is just basically a way to take some of the chips off the table. Obviously, you didn't sell completely. You're not out. But selling a big chunk was basically just exactly taking right. chips off the table. That's exactly right. And now I've got, you know, I've got essentially my – you know, my own personal financial planning, those needs are fully met. And now it gives us an opportunity to help grow the organization with the deep pocket partner behind us that can help us through both increased marketing and through some acquisitions. And, and if you, yeah, obviously I think, you know, you look at our industry, I think you look 10 years out, there's going to be some large regional, some large national firms, and there'll be, there'll still be some mom, mom and pops, but it's going to be tougher and tougher for say a mid-sized firm, I think they're going to have. Um, I think the mom and pops will be. I think it's going to look a lot more like the accounting industry. I call it the deadly middle. That you know, when I look out five to ten years, I mean, I, I see, I see large regional and national firms that you know, couple billion dollars, and you're very dominant in your in your city or area. You know, firms that are by then going to be ten, twenty plus billion dollars that are building into into national brands. You know, a giant slew of small solo advisors that I think are actually going to be fine. I'm way more upbeat on the 
the potential for solo advisors in the future because the technology yeah, is yeah, making yeah, us insanely <laughs> efficient. But I think the only way the solo advisor survives in that environment is you you have to have some kind of niche focus to differentiate yourself because you can't be you can't be a small solo generalist when there are mega, when you're competing head to head with mega national firms who have droves and droves of generalists to do generalist stuff. Like if you want to, if you want to be small and differentiate yourself, you can do that, but you have to actually differentiate yourself with some kind of specialization. And then you get left in the middle with this thing that like, I'm starting to just call the deadly middle that is a really wide zone. Like I think it's, it's any, anything from a couple hundred million dollars up to a few billion, you know, like a, maybe a, a 250 million to two and a half billion dollar range where you're too big to sit still, to sit still and to kind of rest on your laurels, right? If you're, if you're under 200 million, you can make some amazing money and have one to three staff members and a lot of organizational flexibility. When you get larger and the infrastructure builds out, like you, you can't go backwards. Your people want raises and job promotions. So you have to keep moving forward and, and career, career tracks and all the rest. But the only way you keep moving forward is you have to keep plowing more and more dollars back into the business to get bigger and get bigger. And you don't get to take home anymore. You just have this bigger thing that demands more cash. So you try to get out on the other end with some scale that you can start growing again. But for a lot of firms, I see like that's the, that scalability point doesn't come back until like literally several billion dollars, like three to five billion dollars. I, I see a lot of firms. Like at that point, you fully institutionalize your marketing. If you haven't, you fully institutionalize your investments. You fully institutionalize your your planning processes, and and the thing starts scaling again. But it's this horrifically long zone in the middle that just seems to be getting wider, where you're too small to be big and too big to be small. I totally agree with you on those things, Michael. I also here's my passion. I'd like to see a client that, regardless of what town or city they're in. They're going to have the same process and same kind of service regardless of where they are. So whether in Sacramento or Syracuse or Saratoga, they're going to go through the same process and have the same kind of service. That doesn't exist today. So you know, you look at these national firms, and I'm not going to call any names. It doesn't matter, but just think of the names yourself. You know, if, if, your, if your mother went to the local office – who knows what the process she's yeah. going to get through, right? She might have a great certified financial planner, acts as a fiduciary, puts a great – but she might also get sold a bunch of garbage, the same firm. So I'd love to see a national fiduciary firm where it's the same process, just like the, you, if you're if you're a large consulting firm or a large tax firm, accounting firm or whatnot, large law firm, you know what the process is going to be. You know, I'd like to see the same sort of thing happen in the investment advisory space. And so our bet is that there's going to be other advisors that feel the same, that are also looking at this, you know, maybe what Hanson McLean's is not a bad idea. Maybe we should look at, you know, partnering up with them and let's see what we can create together. When I was young, you know, I, I thought I had a lot of good gifts and talents and relied upon myself for a lot of things. And I think the longer I'm in this industry, the older I get, the re I realize more and more that I have few few gifts and few, few talents, and I really need to rely upon others. And the more I've really learned that, I think the more I enjoy working with teams of people. And that's why I think I'm excited about this opportunity for us. So let's find some other people who would like to join us and see where we can take this. So help me understand the the mentality, though, of just this, you know, I know you said you wanted to, to take some chips off the table, and I, and I get it. But I don't know, like, I, I still feel like 
most people struggle with this idea of, of you know, hey, we're we're two and a half billion dollars. Let's sell 70% of it and then grow to five to 10 billion. Or like kind of feels like a lot of money gets left on the table when you sell a big chunk and then power forward on growth. Like how do how do you reconcile that in your in your head? How do you look at this? But I think the only way for us to really I don't know how I was going to get to 10 billion in any length of time without a huge inf- infusion of capital. I certainly didn't want to go borrow a bunch of I know there's banks out of the land for certain things, but they're all with the personal guarantees, right? So it's always fine when things go well, but the banks come knocking when they don't, right? So I didn't want I didn't want any personal guarantees out there for anything. So I've got it was a risk tolerance thing. Like I'm, I don't want to bet my life. And just the recognition that that growth takes cash. Which means if you want to accelerate the growth, you have to put in more cash, and that's what starts to create the the business that's risk exactly and the lifestyle right. risk. Otherwise, you've got that. You know, you're talking about the twenty five percent margin or thirty five, yep. whatever that number is. If you're going to start spending to grow through marketing, you're bringing that margin down. The next downturn, suddenly there's a capital call. Well, I don't want any capital calls. <laughs> Part Parthenon can deal with the with the capital calls. They've got the they got the pockets yeah. for it. <laughs> So and and any thought as to like why seventy percent like because I, I know the one that jumps out of me is like why not forty nine point nine percent? Well, there's certain private equity firms that are comfortable with that sort of thing, and there's certain private equity okay. firms that aren't. So Parthenon they like to take a majority position. They like to do a lot of research and provide a lot of intellectual capital, not just financial capital. That's kind of their model. We were attracted to that kind of model. I mean, that's because I was going to ask as well, like, why, why not some of the various roll ups that are out there or, or other folks? Like, when you're, when you're in that position, when you are a large firm and some folks are calling, like, how do you decide which, which calls to take and which of those deals? So, one, one of the roll ups, I remember re- meeting with one of the roll up firms, I'm not going to mention the name, but after then I said, why in the world would anyone do this deal? Because <laughs> I'm going to give up my first 50 cents of earnings you guys keep and the last 50 cents I keep. What happens if the- – right, So if the market goes down, you keep your 50 cents and mine goes to zero. Yes. When the market goes down, yeah. Then what incentive am I going to have and what happens if we're all in the same – anyway, I just didn't – wasn't attracted to that model. And some of the other firms, they just didn't seem like they had a national – it wasn't a national brand. It wasn't a national planning process. They felt more like clusters, like roll-ups, yeah. like – it was just a financial deal. Conglomerations of roll-ups as opposed to actually building towards a national firm. Because that's that's your that's your aspiration for Hanson McLean at this point. Like you you want to use the Parthenon that's capital correct. to actually grow national. Yeah. And I don't care if it's called Hanson McLean or Acme, frankly, whatever is gonna work best for the consumer and, and for other advisors and, and you don't worry that at some point they're gonna fire you from the company you made when they own seventy percent. Well, I know I can, it's like every day, every day our clients can fire us, right? So we all serve somebody. I don't care who you are. You're serving somebody. I serve my wife. I serve <laughs> my kids. I serve my clients. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's, and I'm not afraid of that. So they don't, they don't own 70% of Scott Hansen. Right. right? So you'll find things to do if they choose to free up your time. Yeah. So as you look back, that's obviously not the plan. I don't think it's the plan. Hopefully not. <laughs> if that was their plan, I would imagine they would have just asked for 100% and be done with it. So so as you look back, you know, you you you've had lots of changes and turning points as the as the business has evolved. And so I'm 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 curious as you look at it cuz you I mean you've been in the industry for a long time. You've seen other firms that succeed and 
and struggle. Like, are there are there differences from your end? It's like, why do things seem to be working well in Hanson McLean when a lot of other firms have struggles? Like, what is it that you you guys do differently? I like to think it's our great humility, <laughs> but it's probably not. But we always question everything. We're always questioning our processes. Is this the right thing? We're always looking at what's out. I, frankly, I'm always looking at what other people are doing because I don't think we have all the answers. And I said earlier, when almost everything we do, I've copied from somebody else. Bus- business success is not about ideas. It's about implementation. It's about execution of those ideas, not about the ideas. So I think we are highly process-driven. Anything we're going to do more than once, we have a process behind it, build procedures behind that, and, and monitor everything. So as we wrap up here, this is a show about success. And, and one of the things we always observe on every episode is, is – just the the word itself, success, means very different things to different people and, and often even different things to us in our lives as as we evolve over time. So for for where things stand today is as you've built this business, you've had a, at least it's kind of a call it a partial liquidity event, but you're also really excited to stay in it and double it or quadruple it from here. I'm curious at this point, how do you define success? That's a good question. <laughs> because if you look at it from a business standpoint, I have tremendous respect and admiration for a number of different advisors. They're not just the ones that have the biggest firms or making the most amount of money. Because that, that's not – matter of fact, sometimes I see a small operator who is – that has such great care for their client that I think they're extremely successful advisors. But I, I, think, I think success is being able to achieve everything that – not only you want, but I think what's also for good for those that are around you in every area of, of your life, not just your business life, but your family life and, you know, the other, uh, other circles of life that you're in. I think if, if you can be in an, an area where you are providing value to others and enjoying the journey, that's success. So I, have, I have a lot of interest in life besides work, too. I'm not working 70 hours a week by any means. So I, I do lots of different things and I find lots of value and I try to be successful in lots of different areas. And I have a lot of room to grow in most areas of my life. Well, thank you for taking the time and sharing some of that growth story with us here today on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks, Michael. I enjoyed talking with you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.